Chapter 6 God Picks Abraham the Father of the Faithful The world, after its creation by the one God of heaven and earth, soon fell into terrible trouble. Adam and Eve were taken in by the subtle lies of the devil, and they lost their place in the paradise garden of Eden. They listened to the devil and not to God. This was the beginning of a downward spiral of evil. Cain, son of Adam and Eve, murdered his brother. Subsequent generations were not able to reverse the trend of violence and sin which overwhelmed the young human race. This account can be read in Genesis chapters 1 through 6. Eventually, in Genesis 6, an extraordinary account of supernatural evil in collaboration with human evil is given. We read that certain angelic beings, the expression sons of God in Hebrew, Job 1.6, Job 2.1, Job 38.7, compare Daniel 3.25, always means angelic beings and not humans. One Greek version of the Old Testament translates the term in Genesis 6.2 correctly as angels. The New Testament refers to this disastrous evil in 2 Peter 2 verse 4 and Jude 6. We read that certain angelic beings in Genesis 6 cohabited with human females and produced a hybrid offspring of giants who terrorized the world. They are remembered also in Greek literature as renowned heroes, so-called, of old. This disaster allowed evil of all sorts to prevail in even greater measure. God who allowed mankind freedom to make his own good or bad choices, actually regretted that he had made man at all. Genesis 6, verse 6. He therefore purposed to exert his almighty strength in the form of a totally devastating judgment, the flood. For some 120 years, Noah, who understood God's immortality plan, warned his fellow human beings that catastrophe was facing the human race unless they repented of their evil. There are, of course, direct parallels between the situation on earth, which led to the great judgment of the flood, and the conditions which Jesus predicted will prevail on earth just prior to his return to destroy the wicked and bring in the kingdom. Jesus said that conditions just before his return will be like the careless and godless times of Noah. Eventually, after the vast majority mocked Noah's warnings and dismissed him as some sort of religious fanatic, God sent a flood which drowned everyone except for Noah and his immediate family, eight persons in all. Peter in the New Testament reminds his readers of the awful dangers of complacency. 2 Peter 2 verses 5 to 9. God will continue to judge evil societies. He's done this before, and he'll do it again. We cannot afford to lose our grip on the need to pursue what Jesus called the will of God. Doing the will of God for Jesus was closely connected with believing and helping to propagate the good news gospel of the kingdom of God. To do the will of God is the same, according to Jesus, as, quote, hearing the word, gospel of the kingdom, that is, and doing it. 
We will examine that connection between the kingdom and the will of God in a later chapter. God does not impose on us a burdensome religion, but his standards for us are very high. God is relentlessly opposed to violence and sexual impurity of all sorts. The Bible is strongly against all forms of sexual perversion and present attempts to redefine the word marriage represent the lengths to which humanity will go to defy the Creator. Jesus warned against false prophets and advised us that they are to be recognized by their so-called fruits. Where sexual perversion of any sort is practiced or taught by religious leaders and their followers, one can be sure that they are not representing Jesus. Some leaders not only practiced adultery, but advocated it as beneficial to their disciples. One group set themselves not only in this regard against the will of God, but they counseled opposition to the Messiah by denying the need for water baptism. Despite the terrible judgment caused by the flood, it was not long after that that the human race began once again to fill the earth with evil. Noah's children had not learned the lesson of the flood. In Babylon, the land of Nimrod, who was an anti-God figure, people combined their resources to build a monumental tower, the Tower of Babylon, Genesis 11. It was a symbol of man's attempt to reach up to heaven. God's response was to prevent a further disaster by dispersing the people in all directions and confusing their languages. This move on the part of God diffused the enormous danger to humanity caused by a united world movement in opposition to God. Then God began, so to speak, all over again. He decided to call out of the pagan city of Ur in Babylon a single couple whose names have been known throughout history as heroes of true faith. God invited Abram, later called Abraham, to give up everything for his cause. He was told to leave his country and his relatives and to depart, relying simply on God and his promises for an unknown land. Abraham and his wife Sarah obeyed, and they are the model for us all of the right response to the gospel. The story of Abraham begins in Genesis 12, and chapters 13, 15, and 17 of Genesis deal especially with the covenant God made with him. Abraham and his wife Sarah obeyed, and they are the model for us all of the right response to the gospel. We are meant to have what Paul called, quote, the faith of Abraham, Romans 4 verse 16. Christians are defined in the New Testament as the spiritual children of Abraham, Galatians 3.29. Staying for a time in a place called Haran, Abraham eventually left that city and journeyed on to the land we now know as Israel. It was known also as the land of Palestine. God had determined to make this country the center of his great plan. Abraham was promised a permanent inheritance in that land. Genesis 13, verse 15, Genesis 17, verse 8, and so on. This he has never yet received, though he died fully assured that he would receive it 
at the future resurrection when Jesus returns. Here is the plain statement from the Bible which supports this point. Quote, All these died in faith without receiving the promises. That's in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 13 and 39. The writer was referring to all the biblical heroes of faith who believed in God's kingdom plan. Christians are those who follow in the steps of Abraham to whom God promised the world, according to Romans 4, verse 12. Abraham is celebrated in the Bible as, quote, the father of the faithful, Romans 4, verses 11 and 16. The faith of Abraham, Romans 4, 16, we repeat, is a phrase used by Paul to describe what true believing is, true Christianity, in fact. The reason for this Abraham connection is simply this. God promised to give to Abraham a descendant who would be the Messiah, the Christ, Jesus. At the same time, the promise to Abraham included a guarantee that if Abraham obeyed God, he and his descendant, Christ, and descendants, plural, the Christians, would inherit the whole land of Israel, and since Israel would be the center of the world kingdom, they would inherit the whole world. Paul spoke of this great promise as, quote, the promise to Abraham and to his seed that he would be heir of the world. Romans 4, verse 13. This is a key biblical phrase which opens up important vistas of understanding of God's immortality program. Inheritance of the world promised to Abraham, the father of the faithful, is exactly the same as the inheritance of the kingdom promised to Jesus and by Jesus to his followers. The story is essentially simple. The Christian gospel of the kingdom preached by Jesus cannot be properly grasped without the vital Old Testament information about the land and seed promise made by God to Abraham. Yes, we may describe the divine promises to Abraham as simply the promise of seed, or descendant, and of soil, the land. The seed and the soil. The concept is not complicated. If you have a land, you need a king to be in charge of it. The land needs a manager. Thus, God's whole plan to establish the kingdom of God on earth involves both land and landowner. The promise to Abraham was that the Messiah would one day be born as a blood descendant of Abraham, and that the Messiah, after teaching and dying and rising from death, would take over the politics of the world by ruling in his kingdom. It is to be a kingdom over the land and the whole earth. It will be God's kingdom ruled by his supreme agent, who is Jesus, the Messiah. God has decided to give the land and the whole world to those who please him. You'll find that statement directly said by Jeremiah in Jeremiah 27, verse 5. There's a key here to the whole biblical story. The basic fact to get hold of is this. The land promised to Abraham is exactly the same as the kingdom of God gospel promise in the New Testament. The background of the gospel preaching of Jesus, in other words, was the announcement to Abraham that he would possess the land forever. 
the land would belong to Abraham and his special descendant, the Messiah Jesus. Jesus knew that he was a lineal descendant of Abraham and that he, Jesus, was that distinguished, quote, seed who would arise in Israel to rule in the coming kingdom. Jesus knew that he was the ultimate heir to the land and thus the king of the kingdom of God. He invites others through the gospel to be part of that kingdom in the land. Quote, blessed are the meek, they will have the land as their inheritance. That's in Matthew 5 verse 5. How strikingly different this is from the hopelessly vague promise of, quote, heaven for disembodied souls promoted in churches. No wonder many are completely, quote, turned off from church. The point of the Christian venture, as presented by church, makes no impact on them. They find the prospect of disembodiment in heaven almost repulsive and certainly very boring and uninviting. The Bible is all about who gets, quote, the land, the very issue now causing so much trouble in the Middle East. Jesus will get the land, and he will share it with his followers when he returns. To try to take it over now, or engineer policies to make Jews or Arabs own it now, lies completely outside the range of the teaching of Jesus. It is surprising that this wonderful connection between what God promised to Abraham and what he promises to Christians is not common knowledge in church. It is written in scripture for all to see. Genesis 28 verse 4, Isaac's son Jacob was told, May God pass on to you and your descendants the blessings he promised to Abraham. May you own this land where now we are foreigners, for God gave it to Abraham. And what exactly is that promised blessing? Let the New Testament answer. Galatians 3 verse 14, I quote, Through the work of Christ Jesus, God has blessed the Gentiles with the same blessing he promised to Abraham, and we Christians receive the promised Holy Spirit through faith. Blessing promised to Abraham is exactly the same blessing that is promised to Christians. It's the future inheritance of the land, in other words, the kingdom of God. The promise of the land to Abraham is so utterly crucial to understanding the Bible and Christianity that I want you to hear the whole passage in which God established his firm agreement, a covenant, with Abraham. These are indeed fascinating words. I quote, when Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty, serve me faithfully and live a blameless life. I will make a covenant with you by which I will guarantee to make you into a mighty nation. At this, Abraham fell face down in the dust. Then God said to him, this is my covenant with you. I will make you the father of not just one nation, but a multitude of nations. What's more, I'm changing your name. It will no longer be Abram. Now you will be known as Abraham, for you will be the father of many nations. I will give you millions of descendants who will represent many nations. Kings will be among them. 
I will continue this everlasting covenant between us generation after generation. It will continue between me and your offspring forever. And I will always be your God and the God of your descendants after you. Yes, I will give you all this land of Canaan to you and to your offspring forever. And I will be their God. Your part of the agreement, God told Abraham, is to obey the terms of the covenant. You and all your descendants have this continual responsibility. Genesis 17, verses 1 to 9. Now you, reader, too, can be a part of this astonishing program promised to Abraham and finally to Jesus himself. Although most Jews rejected the claims of Jesus, some did not. The claim of Jesus was that he was indeed the long-promised Christ, the King, the Son of God. On a most important occasion during the kingdom ministry of Jesus, Jesus put the most fundamental of all questions to his disciple and apostle, Peter. Jesus wanted to be assured that Peter understood who Jesus was. Jesus noted that some people thought various things about who he was. Some thought he was John the Baptist, resurrected, or perhaps one of the prophets. But these views were quite mistaken. Hence Jesus' pointed question to Peter was this, Who do you say that I am? Peter gave the only correct answer to this decisive question. You are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus recognized that it was by supernatural revelation that Peter understood that Jesus was the Messiah, the chosen descendant promised to Abraham, the heir to the kingdom, the saviour of all who turned to him. It was on this rock confession of Peter that Jesus proposed to build his true church. Matthew 16, verses 16 to 18. The whole Bible story is about the land or kingdom and its king. Jesus the Christ or Messiah. It is essential not to miss the extreme importance of this episode when Peter correctly identified who Jesus is. The key is to know and understand that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. These titles are complementary. They have the same meaning. As we saw, Jesus is the Son of God because of the marvelous miracle performed in Mary, the mother of Jesus. Please review this vitally significant fact in chapter 4. Later church traditions changed and obscured the identity of Jesus drastically. The idea arose, after Bible times, that the Son of God meant God the Son, the second member of what was called the triune God, or Trinity. Unfortunately, Jesus would not have recognized such a far-reaching switch of his identity. Jesus claimed always to be the Messiah. Certainly he never claimed to be God himself. He never ever raised his own status to that of the uncreated God. Not once did Jesus ever say, I am God. Jesus was always subordinate to his Father, and Jesus recited and affirmed as the only acceptable creed the Creed of Israel. Quote, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. 
one Lord, it says, not two, and not three Lords. If both the Father and the Son are God, that would, of course, make two gods. Jesus would have dismissed such a belief as a dangerous paganism. Jesus agreed with a Jewish scribe that the creed given to Israel was the all-important key for worshipping God, quote, in spirit and truth, John 4, verse 24. Jesus obviously believed in the central creed of Israel and of the Bible. So should his followers, of course. Jesus' creed, as recorded in Mark 12, verses 28 to 34, is the Christian creed, and he would have been puzzled and disturbed by later theories about God, which no Jew will accept today. And of course, the billion Muslims on earth likewise reject belief in the triune God developed after the Bible was written. This issue about who God is is no minor question. Some three billion religious people on earth claiming to be monotheists, that is, believers that God is one, are unable to agree on their definition of God. It would be immensely valuable to proclaim once again the creed of Jesus that God the Father is, quote, the only one who is truly God. We'll find that statement in John 17, 3. That was indeed the creed of Jesus himself and ought to command our utmost respect. This enormously significant fact about the later invention of a new status for Jesus, which he would not have recognized, has not been told you in church. In fact, if any church member raises questions about the much later claim that the important thing is to know that Jesus is God, he's likely to be viewed as a traitor to Jesus. Far from that being true, a questioner as to who Jesus is simply calls attention to Jesus' own description of who he really is. Jesus should know. He never ever claimed to be anyone other than the Messiah, the Son of God. All sons are subordinate to their fathers who produced them. A son cannot possibly be the same age as his father, and since the Bible tells us that Jesus was the begotten Son of God, this merely confirms what is anyway quite obvious, that Jesus was brought into existence by his Father. That is what the word beget means, as any dictionary of English or Greek or Hebrew will tell you. Yes, to beget means to become the father of someone, to bring that person into existence. Jesus was brought into existence as the Son of God in Mary's womb. That's what Luke chapter 1 verse 35 says. When that precious text enjoys a comeback, it will undo a mass of traditional teaching about Jesus which has been accepted blindly and uncritically as, quote, tradition. To say then, as churches customarily do, that the Son had no beginning of existence is to contradict the Bible badly. The word beget, in that case, has been emptied of all meaning. The texts which speak of Jesus as the begotten, that is, brought into existence, Son of God, have been cleverly ruled out of court by churches. Their obvious meaning has been obliterated. 
and a false tradition that Jesus was always the Son and had no beginning has been put in their place. This is destructive to God's plan to save humanity by a sinless man, the appointed mediator between the one God and ourselves. Paul stated this very clearly. I quote, There is one God and one mediator between that one God and man, Messiah Jesus, who is himself man. 1 Timothy 2 verse 5. Is this a difficult teaching to understand? Equally important in this question of the identity of Jesus is the promise made to Abraham of a coming, quote, seed or descendant who would appear on the scene of history and eventually rule the land and the world. It is obviously important that we identify that seed and recognize him as the legal and biological descendant of Abraham. All other claimants would be frauds. Abraham was not promised that God would be his seed and heir. God is not a created being. God has always existed. The Son of God, the Messiah, is strictly a member of the human race. One contemporary leader of a big church said that Mary changed God's diapers. Another said that God came to Mary and asked her, Will you please be my mother? The Bible writers would have rejected such ideas as nonsense. God was never a baby. God is not a man. He is God and alone has immortality, as 1 Timothy 6.16 says. God cannot die. Therefore, since he is immortal, and the Bible says, that the Son of God, Jesus, died. The whole point about the Messiah is that he originates as a member of the human race, and it's essential that the Son of God died. Otherwise, there is no sacrifice for sin. If Jesus is God, and God is immortal, as 1 Timothy 6.16 states, then Jesus cannot have died then there is no sacrifice for the sins of humanity. If the Father is God, which is stated thousands of times in the Bible, then the Son cannot also be God. That would make two gods. The Bible warns against any deviation from the truth that there is only one God. While the Father was in heaven, the Son of God came into existence on earth and taught on earth. If both are God, that adds up to two gods. Just look at some of the terribly confusing statements about who God is offered at a website. Quote, God is a person, three persons, yet but one God. It is logical nonsense to propose that God is one person and three persons. Three X's cannot equal one X. At present, church members are taught that they must, for salvation, believe that God is three in one. However, sermons are not preached on what this means. It is just to be believed on the basis of a heavy-handed official teaching of, quote, the church. John Calvin, the reformer, actually authorized the judicial burning at the stake 
of a young theologian who dared to question the Trinity. The centuries-long disputes which racked the church over who Jesus was in relation to his father are the sad monuments to the awful results of abandoning the Hebrew creed of Jesus. Meanwhile, millions of Jews and Muslims knew better. They knew that God is one and only one, certainly not three, and as many theologians know that the average churchgoer does not know what to make of the mysterious idea that God is one and three. Yet, woe betide anyone who questions that dogma, he's likely to be given the left foot of fellowship kicked out. Thankfully, in our time, there's enough literature around from first-class scholars to call attention to the fact that the Church has been promoting for nearly 2,000 years a creed which contradicted the belief of Jesus. To say that the seed of Eve and of Abraham would actually be God, would make nonsense of the whole promise to Abraham. Abraham looked forward to the birth of the Messiah, a descendant of his. Mary conceived that royal descendant at a given moment of history. That seed was indeed the Son of God, certainly not God the Son, because God was responsible for his existence, which began in the womb of his mother, just as all human beings originate in their mothers. Mary did not act as a sort of conduit or channel through which an already existing Son of God passed, moving from a spiritual life to a human existence. That sort of idea belongs in pagan religions. It reminds us of pagan concepts of reincarnation. It would be a sort of metamorphosis and not a begetting at all. You cannot be human if you are pre-human. We are what we are according to our origin, and the origin of Jesus, Son of God, was in the womb of Mary. He was brought into existence in the womb of his mother. He is the beginning of God's new and final creation. Adam failed, but Jesus succeeded, and we are all summoned to follow him and gain life forever. Matthew wrote a whole section at the beginning of his gospel about the origin of Jesus. Matthew 1, verses 1 and 18. The Greek word is genesis. This means genesis or beginning. And churches have substituted a completely different story by saying that the Son of God had no beginning. It was to the arrival of this promised royal descendant that Abraham looked forward with such excitement. Abraham died without having received the promise of permanent ownership of the land which God had guaranteed to him. He died looking forward with great joy and excitement to the future coming of his promised descendant, Jesus. Abraham died believing firmly that what God had promised he would accomplish in due time. Believing that what God has said is true and will one day become reality is the essence of faith. There's a great key verse in Genesis 15, verse 6, which announces that, quote, 
Abraham believed God, and this was counted to Abraham as making Abraham right with God. Paul quoted that verse three times in the New Testament. In Romans 4, verses 3 and 9, and Galatians 3, verse 6. James also quoted it in James 2, verse 23. Faith is simply believing what God has said, believing that it's true, and living on the basis of those promises. In the New Testament, faith is concentrated on believing what Jesus said and living in accordance with those promises. What Jesus promised was itself a confirmation of God's promises to Abraham. Romans 15 verse 8. The key here is coming to know what it is that God has promised. It is highly problematic to make up one's own ideas about God's will and promises, to believe our own theories about what God should or might do is perilous. To imagine our own method of achieving everlasting life is risky. True faith is based on the words of Scripture. And now that the Son of God has come, faith is based on the covenant, kingdom words of Jesus and those whom Jesus appointed as his messengers who also wrote Scripture for us all. Man's failure from the dawn of human history has been his willingness to believe the falsehoods of the devil rather than the truth told him by God. Reversing that tragedy, which is the cause of all of our problems, means beginning to listen carefully to and heed the words of the new Adam, Jesus, and his agents. All true faith rests on the recorded words of the Jesus of history, summarized as his gospel about the kingdom. That phrase sums up the entire Bible story. It is all about the kingdom, about who gets the land. This is the very issue over which people in the Middle East and elsewhere struggle apparently endlessly today. The solution to the problem is given us in the Bible. Jesus gets the land. He is the Messiah, and he promised his followers of all nations that if they are meek, they will, quote, inherit the land, Matthew 5, verse 5. That, too, is what Abraham looked forward to. That land, or kingdom promise, is, of course, simply the great promise of God to Abraham, confirmed by the one who is the object of all the promises, Jesus the Messiah. Another key figure in the unfolding drama of the kingdom is the celebrated King David. He understood very well the vastly important role he had been chosen to fulfill in the Messianic Kingdom Immortality Program. The whole activity of God in history took on an even greater clarity when Nathan the prophet explained God's intentions for David's royal household and dynasty. That part of our story belongs to the next chapter.